0: Let's start out by saying that you are tuned into 91.3 WVKR, Independent Radio, Poughkeepsie, New York, and the show is Local Motion. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the YouTube channel, Local Motion on 91.3 WVKR, as well as giving a like and a follow on the Facebook page by the same name. Today, as I mentioned, we have Chris Brubeck. So let's get him on air. Chris, are you there?
1: I am, Rita. Oh, How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for for being on the show and for your time here today. It's really always a pleasure, and it's it's truly an honor to have you on the show today. I'd like to start off, if I may, with a brief introduction um, to get listeners a little bit more familiar. I'll start off by saying John Von Ryan, music critic for the Chicago Tribune, calls Chris Brubeck, quote, a composer with a real flair for lyrical melody, a 21st century Lenny Bernstein, unquote. Chris is an innovative musician in both jazz and classical music, and a Grammy-nominated composer. He was a member of his late father's Dave Brubeck's Quartet for 20 years. He's part of the Brubeck Brothers Quartet, along with his brother Dan. Chris is also a soloist with orchestras and has, has served as artist in residence with orchestras and college music departments across the country. He also plays with his group Triple Play. A warm welcome to Local Motion, Chris Brubeck.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Rita. Thank you very much for that intro.
0: (laughs) You're quite welcome. You're quite welcome. I've got to tell you something. You and I have never met. I met Mike uh, D'Amico back in the 90s when he was playing Digital Dolphins with Dan.
1: Right. Yeah. What and, a great band
0: that was. Oh, man. They need to resurrect that. That was amazing, that band. And um, I have to tell you that my first intro to jazz, and it is my favorite genre of music, although it's also good that you really can't really have much of a favorite. So, in my early 20s, somebody says, let's go to the Bardivon and let's go see this show tonight. And I just go. "Yeah, you know, Bardavon Bardivon, Poughkeepsie, P- P- beautiful theater, mid-20s. I'd never really got didn't know jazz I was rock and roll, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I go to the concert, and it's none other than Dave Brubeck.
1: Oh, really? Huh, I, how about that?
0: I started jazz in my mid-20s, and the first concert I ever went to was Dave Brubeck. I remember Rob Leone was there. Your brother was there. Uh-huh. Mike D'Amico was there. And that, oh, I had never heard anything quite like it and after that i have loved jazz so it's all thanks to that one night at the Bardevan with your dad
1: oh that's great well what what a great baptism that was for you and i'm yeah. I'm, I'm glad you know i've met you know really hundreds of people in my life who will tell me that that was like the first concert that they saw and that opened the door and got the curiosity going mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, in fact you're, you're in good company because that was also a comment that barack obama made to us <laughs> as well is that, that was right his first jazz concert. Uh, yeah absolutely and, and he and uh, i and share
0: his, a birthday
1: wow well now you really got something going there
0: <laughs> and wait to hear this louis armstrong is on our day too
1: Oh, man! Well, that's
0: fantastic, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, great. yeah, no, so it's so it, anyway, so that that was like just my introduction, but anyway, Chris, I've really enjoyed doing my homework and research and listening to past interviews you've done and read articles now, I always start out every single show, and with you, it's a little bit different. Um, I always start out, so hey, what so what got you into music? well, um. Ha! Uh, You are, um, your parents, um, you know, your dad is the legendary Dave Brubeck, and there are six of you, yes? Six children? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah, and I understand that when you were born, I don't know if your dad did this for all all the kids, but he wrote a song called Crazy Chris for you.
1: Yeah, it um isn't one of his stronger compositions. <laughs> 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 he he, he saw, sort of co opted Christopher Columbus. <laughs> you know. right, right. But uh I think my I think my sister got the very best tune, Kathy's Waltz.
0: That's a beautiful is, uh, song, which of course the record uh, label great. messed up the letter, right?
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah, they spelled it with a K. Yeah and uh, my sister always insisted to, till her dying day you know that uh, she always spelled columbia records with a k just <laughs> as, as revenge
0: <laughs> that's beautiful i do understand that she recently passed away so condolences to you and your entire family um, about well, uh, such thank a, you. such a profound loss yeah 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 yeah
1: yeah she was uh, she was a great spirit and it it's hard to believe that uh, we're getting old enough that you know, these kinds of things. Um, Well, we all know academically and intellectually that we do not live forever. But, uh, you know, it's just, uh, you you get old enough, you start losing your friends and colleagues. And it's interesting because the Brubeck Brothers Quartet uh, have been doing a lot of touring over the last uh, couple years uh, because in uh, 2020 was the the centennial of our dad, who was born in 1920. And uh and so we did a couple really cool things, uh, including a big jazz cruise that was dedicated uh to Dave, uh you know, and then we had some big plans like the Hollywood Bowl was gonna be a big concert with Joey de Francesca and also uh with uh at Royal Albert Hall in London with the B B C Orchestra and a chorus and all these kind of things that, that took years of planning and then Covid hit it and uh you know the whole world, as we all know, you and all listeners, uh, got turned upside down, and maybe extra, especially for musicians. Yes. Uh, yes. So, uh, but I bring that up in the context that we made a special concert that had a lot of videos. So, when we played the tune Kathy's Waltz," we found all these uh, different, uh, you know, stills and uh, videos from our our youth, and so we ourselves as eternally young kids with, you know, plastic saxophones in their mouth, you know, <laughs> and you're, uh, oh. then you're reminded of, of that all the time. It's been a real sort of continuum, this awareness of Dave's centennial and, and how uh, fragile and wonderful life is all at the same time. All
0: at the same time. All at the same time. And out of the six children that your mom and dad had, four of you are professional musicians, Correct.
1: Right, and oddly enough, that's the four of us that are left alive. Live, yeah. You would think, you'd think it would be the musicians <laughs> who'd go first <laughs> with the crazy road life that we lead, you know?
0: Right, right.
1: But, uh, but music, somehow, there's,
0: there's something about it, and you know it all too well. It's just, uh, it it's it's healing, it's, it's all those things, and um, so... Y- you know, you had a very extraordinary childhood growing up with the dad that you did, musically. Your first instrument was piano, is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, and I actually wasn't really interested too much in piano. I mean when you're a little kid what's great about the piano is as long as you can get your your chubby little pudgy hand on a keyboard and press down it will make a noise mm-hmm. unlike a you know a trumpet or a trombone or you know a violin you know god knows what's going to happen is some like my granddaughter picked up the trombone and made a really good blasting sound like right, right away oh. so some some kids can do that and uh, you know others can't but The reason that I started on piano is that my father suspected, just in terms of, you know, how we'd sing Christmas songs or, you know, can you sing around with your family or whatever, that I had really good ears and probably had enough talent to be a musician and probably even a composer. And he said, you know, if you're going to be a composer, you've got to know and understand how to read treble clef and bass clef and understand rhythmic notation. And he really wanted that for his kids because my father... Uh, sort of, it makes no sense because he went on to write uh, more more than eighteen choral compositions, like wow. big oratorios and cantatas. But uh, he was someone that really was uh, a musician that learned and played by ear. He had some sort of form of dyslexia and cross eyes and bad eyesight, and he just didn't have the kind of brain that could look at that fly specks on paper and turn that into music. But he could hear anything and turn that into music, right so and he uh, grew and up he, on
0: a farm
1: a ranch
0: a ranch he's Even, a cowboy his grand your your grandfather was right
1: right, yeah, it was literally like they they weren't wealthy, they didn't own the ranch, but the guy uh, that owned the ranch hired my grandfather to run the ranch, he was called the foreman of the ranch, and it was a forty thousand acre ranch. Wow so that's like as big as a county or something and uh yeah and so i've got movies i was just uh looking at uh the, some of the the dvd discs on my shelves. Uh, i'm moving right now so i'm like i'm sort of re-examining you know all the hundreds and hundreds of, of cds and dvds like am i holding on to too much here and then you say like oh no, uh, you know DVD yeah. of Dave, you know roping and steering and branding. No, you got to hold on to that. Yes, you
0: know? <laughs> yes, absolutely.
1: But he, he really was a cowboy. I mean, that's how he started. It's an amazing life. It really came from that. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Very, very, very interesting for sure. Um, and and so, how old were you when you first like? started taking piano, listening to it, I understand from another interview I heard you do that um, all you kids took piano lessons and your mother would, like, have a teacher come in and, like, one after the other. It's your turn. It's your turn.
1: Is right. That-, <laughs> right. That, that is true. I mean, I started about five, and this is when we lived in California. Um, and a lot of people said, well, did your father teach you? And the actual fact of that is is that no, that he didn't. Because he was gone all the time on tour, mm-hmm. and so you need consistency. So, um, my father and mother very wisely sought out a guy who had a great reputation for teaching kids. Because uh, I know other people will ask me, "Do I know a teacher?" And I said, "Well, make sure you, you get a good one." Because I've, as a teenager, I had a couple terrible uh, teachers, and mm-hmm. uh, you know. They would make you want to quit any instrument that they taught. <laughs> you know, they, were, they were like the kind of people that would hit your fingers because the hand position was wrong and wrap you with a ruler and you know, that kind of crap. And uh, so, but eventually, when we moved to Connecticut, um, there got to be a point where a teacher would just come in and teach all of us in a row, and we'd literally be playing football in the field. And then I'd hear my mom yell. Chris, it's time for your piano lesson! And I'd go, crap, you know, I was just about to make a touchdown. Then I'd run inside and do my half-hour lesson, and they would go, Dan, it's your turn! You know, Love it. So it was Love like it. that for a while.
0: That's so great. And what was the second instrument you picked up?
1: The uh, second instrument I picked up was trombone. That was when I moved to Connecticut. It was fourth grade, and we had, you know, a little elementary school band, and my brother Darius already played trumpet. My brother Mac- Michael already played sa- uh, sax. So I was like, well, what was left? And I'd heard a lot of Louis Armstrong records around the house, and I enjoyed Trummy Young's playing on trombone. So that seemed like the natural instrument for me to pick up.
0: Not only did you thing. listen to him, didn't you, did your dad like introduce you to Louis Armstrong, too?
1: Yeah, he definitely did, and it was like completely thrilling for me yeah. Uh, yeah i mean to me that was uh it's hard to imagine the equivalent i mean it was sort of like you know like meeting santa claus or the pope or something you know it was like.
0: do you remember <laughs> how old you was, were uh
1: that was at a gig in long island and maybe that was actually i had started playing trombone because uh one of the things that amazed me is that when my father, uh, they were very friendly with each other and had even had the same manager. And so when my father took me into Louis' uh, uh, rest, uh, uh, dressing room to to introduce me, he said, uh, "And my son Chris has started playing the trombone, and he looked down at me because I was probably about you know three and a half feet tall or
2: something." Aww.
1: And he said, Yeah, you play the trombone? You got the chops for it. You know, he saw my rather ample lips and he said that and I I just thought like, Oh, I've been blessed. Louis Armstrong thinks I should play trombone. Wow, wow. What a great story. That was a thrill for me. Mm. You know, being like, playing catch, uh, you know, having a ball thrown at you by Willie Mays or sure, something. Sure, another sure. Another hero of mine, you know, when I was a kid growing up, and and luckily for me, I, you know, stuck with trombone enough and played in Dave's group, and eventually, Troma Young, Louis' trombone player, retired to a, a steady gig uh, at a fancy restaurant slash nightclub at the top of, maybe, like, the Honolulu Hilton or something on Waikiki. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I remember Dave and I went up to see him, and then uh, and my dad was saying, "Yeah, Chris plays trombone." But at this point, I was in my twenties, I think, and uh, and Trummy said, "Hey, why don't you bring your horn?" And so we got to play a, a tune called "Black and Blue," which was one of my favorite songs, wow. and Dad and I used to play that together a lot. And I got to play with Trummy Young. So I, I have been very lucky to have these long arcs of sticking with my instrument, but getting to have some of my dreams come true and meeting some of my heroes.
0: Are you writing a book?
1: uh no (laughs) Mm.
0: Mm. Mm. well
1: a lot of people say i should and i probably should before i forget everything that (laughs) happened in my (laughs) life
0: yeah 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 it's just what a legacy that you're living and um you know uh yeah i mean anyway food for thought food for thought um so fourth grade trombone you're also obviously known as a bass player when did that start for you
1: well, that happened because my older brother Darius, besides playing trumpet, also played piano and then started playing guitar, and he was really into Bob Dylan, and, and sort of when Bob Dylan was going electric kind of phase. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then I asked him to teach me how to play guitar, which he did, and then by the time he was in high school, there were some situations where it's like, oh man, I could play this little you know beach dance kind of thing, but I need a bass player. He said, you know, Chris, at the bass, it's just the same four strings as the bottom of the the guitar you know and, and I had heard Gene Wright, my dad's bass player in the quartet play forever I love listening to him and I, I like the I like the role that a bass player plays in a band mm-hmm. so uh, then I started doing that too mm-hmm. and just stuck with it for a long time and still. Uh, about 1969 is when I've got my first uh, my first and still the same exact electric fretless bass. And uh I, I love that instrument because it allows you to play in a much more jazzy direction. It's not a lot more like an upright than a normal like fretted fender bass.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. And you still have that bass from like fifty years ago.
1: I do. That's great. And I'm I'm very thrilled that the last published uh, physically published issue of Bass Player Magazine, there was an article about that bass and me and our wow. strange little and unique relationship. And the strange and unique sound. Yeah, the editor heard me play a concert and said, what the hell? No one plays like that. that. What is that sound? Wow. <laughs> so, so I'm glad to, uh, I just got under the wire to having someone writing about that. Uh, oh, that's that wonderful. Just
0: Yeah, just in time. Just in time. Now I understand you also went to high school um, in Michigan at the Interlochen Arts Academy. Um, what oh, were, yeah. What were you focusing on there as far as instruments?
1: Well, we were very fortunate, and I don't know if anybody knows about that school, but uh, you know, it was sort of like going to Juilliard, but in high school. Mm-hmm. Or actually, if anyone remembers the TV show Fame, mm-hmm. it was like that, except being in an urban, exciting environment. You were in the middle of nowhere between two lakes uh, in upper Michigan, like five hours north of Detroit. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but being in the middle of nowhere meant you had nothing to do but just dive into music. And also, uh, I was uh, there was a very wealthy insurance guy from Chicago that created this fund that basically said if you can find like any super talented kids, uh, I will give you enough tuition money to give them a full ride. So mm-hmm. it was loaded mm. with people that have gone on to have big classical careers. I mean, like most things, I mean, like if you're a great shortstop, you're probably great in high school, mm-hmm. and then you go on to the pros. Well, you know. There's famous people like David Schifrin was a clarinet player that ended up being the head of uh, Lincoln Center Chamber Projects, and then there was the Kavafian sisters, and Ida and Andy Kavafian and Kim Kashkin, and and Viola. I mean, it went on and on that these people... I always laugh when people can't relate. I said, well, it's kind of like the X-Men. They Mm -hmm. had mutant musical powers, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it was a place that you go to school to hone them. And so we were just diving deep into music, there was two hours of orchestra every day, and I believe we played a new orchestra program every week. I'm not exactly certain if that's true. Maybe it was every other t- every two weeks, but, we, you know, t- tackling, you know, Beethoven symphonies or Brahms pieces or whatever, you know, kind of adult orchestra kind of level stuff. And, um, and then they started, um, uh, there was a new trombone teacher that came in my sophomore year. And he came from University of Illinois, where they had a very famous experimental college big band. Uh, They called it a studio orchestra. And um, my trombone teacher, very uh, persistently and a bit under the radar, uh, started a jazz program there. And so I was doing big band, and then I had my own rock groups with kids that played violin and guitar. And you know we wanted to play at dances and things like that, and there were brass ensembles. So I was probably playing music six to eight hours a day, wow. all different kinds of music.
0: That's amazing. And
1: it was that was heaven for me.
0: Oh, absolutely! It was doing exactly. I mean, if that, you have to go to school, that what a great way to go to school. And then I understand you also um, went for tr- bass trombone performance major at University of Michigan. After that, yes.
1: Yes, that yeah. is true. A, a lot of us. Um, like, I, I, I had anxiety about, like, oh, my God, now I've got to leave and Will I ever be able to get into a college or whatever? I was interested in New England Conservatory. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of us that went to Interlochen, went to University of Michigan for the simple reason. We had a rock band that was very creative and looked like we had a recording deal. And, like, where could we go? And several of us were from Michigan. And Was
0: that New Heavenly Blue?
1: Yeah, that was "No Heavenly Blue." So uh, Love it. then we all went there, and, and you know, and for this great academic reason, University of Michigan got out; school was over very early in May. So it was like then we could hit the road,
0: and you'd have the whole <laughs> summer to tour. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's right.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh! And then you also uh, Sky King. You got signed in 1975 on Columbia.
1: Yeah, yeah, wow. and and you know, even cooler than that is that we were discovered. Um, from an audition tape by the legendary guitarist Steve Cropper. So oh we all got to go down to Memphis and basically record our first record. Amazing. Which um, he was able to, he had just produced Jeff Beck, wow. and so he had contacts at uh, Columbia, and they heard our tape and said, yeah, man, that's that, that group's happening. And then something happened between Steve Cropper and Columbia, and... Uh, they were on the outs, and we ended up having a different producer to f- to finish the record. Mm-hmm. But we got off to a uh, got off to a good start. Most of the record had been cut with him, and and it included such such a fun concepts as like we were doing a real funky track, and he said, "Man, this this track really could use some like really strong horns on it." You know, I'm thinking like, "Oh yeah," you know, some kind of Memphis horn kind of thing. And he said, "Let me make some phone calls," and then he said you guys go eat dinner and then come back about one in the morning I <laughs> said, okay we come back and he had gotten he had produced the top the tower of power uh i think it was called bump city or some kind of down at the nightclub was on that record and so um uh, so lo and behold he had them rounded up to um to play in the studio on this track that we had already cut and i got to play trombone with them and you know with uh greg adams and uh Dr. Kupka and the Barry Saxon, mm. you know, we got to sort of make up an arrangement and, and play that. And so that ended up on the record. But that, you know, Steve Cropper, man, he's a legend and he's, right. that's the kind of stuff he could pull off, you know.
0: Right, right, absolutely. Now, you always, like, throughout all these years and growing up, it was always jazz and classical for you, yes?
1: Uh, yeah. And, and also, you know, my intention when I uh, started started like in high school was, you know, to understand music, but I really, I really thought my dad had so much acclaim and had established such a reputation in jazz that I wanted to be in a really creative rock and roll band Mm -hmm. and figure he had the whole jazz world sewn up. So I didn't go out of the gate saying, I want to be a jazz musician, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. it was, it was only after, um, well, first of all, in the seventies, we would do shows at colleges uh where my dad would play with his group which at that point wasn't the famous quartet but it was with Jerry Mulligan on Barry Sachs, Alan Dawson on drums and Jack Six on bass. And then either New Heavenly Blue or Sky King would play. And then my my group uh, uh my brother's group with Darius and Jerry Bragazi and my brother Dan would play and and um at at that point um uh, a promoter said to a to my father Hey, just for fun, why don't you just play a tune instead of, you know, you've got 15 musicians bouncing in and out of the stage. Why don't you just play with your kids once and see what happens? And uh-huh. we did. And the audience went nuts. Uh-huh. Um, so after paying a lot of bills for 15 airfares and all that kind of stuff, it started occurring to everyone. Huh, if we get the same audience reaction with just the four of us, maybe. Just maybe. <laughs> so that became a group called the New Brubeck Quartet. And we did a couple of years of touring and uh, played at the Montreux Jazz Festival, which was a big um, sort of uh, crowning moment for us. And plus, we, we made a live record there that was that was fun and good and went over great. And uh, yeah, so so that group did its thing. And at that point, Sky King had run into some political problems at Columbia and. We were we had divorced from that label, and my dad said, "Hey, man, why don't you just play jazz with me?" You know, it's like you've been beating your head against the wall trying to do this rock and roll thing. Right. Uh, And so, Chris, when did
0: you when did you find when did I mean your dad's your dad right? You didn't know him as a world international jazz star. When did you realize he was that?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I have a, a moment that is very significant for me that just by luck was a moment that was uh, kind of portrayed in a film. Um, like, did you ever see the movie called Pleasantville? It had Jeff Daniels in it. I think uh, years
0: ago, but I don't remember it, but I do recall that title, so yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, the basic concept of this, and maybe some of your listeners kind of remember the movie, was that these kids watched all the old reruns in a black-and-white channel, uh, like Leave it to Beaver and all the fifty stuff. And so they sort of like, you know, like Alice in Wonderland or something, they go into this dark hole of, of living in this land of black and white. And um, so, and, you know, everything is hunky-dory and everything's nice and things are swell and no one swears and, you know, no one does anything naughty. You know, it's like that kind of early 50s TV sensibility. And Jeff Daniels uh, has a soda shop and in it he's got a jukebox. And everyone literally is in black and white. And then some kid puts Take 5 on the jukebox, wow. and they start listening, and they're going, uh, what is this beat? I mean, and we all know that Take five's in 5-4, five and it was a hit, and it was very unusual. And their ears start turning pink because, like, something not in bland reality it happened. And by the time they're through listening to this thing, like their whole faces turned pink and they're looking at each other they're like, what the hell's going on? What's wrong with me? You know, mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm. turning into real you know, three-dimensional human beings. And so I was with my dad uh, going to a gig in New Jersey just for fun and we pulled aside to one of those jug handle uh, turnarounds on those funky kind of little highways they have and there was a diner and I went into the diner sat in the booth and I'm flipping through those metal pages and I'm seeing, you know, the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and then I saw Dave Brubeck take five and I'm going like, Oh my God, my dad must be a big deal. He's in a jukebox you know what I'm <laughs> So that was a real big moment for me big, of realization. And he
0: was with you when that happened.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was. Yeah. yeah,
0: oh man, wow, yeah, yeah. And your compositions, I mean, you're a Grammy-nominated composer. When did composing, or has that always been there for you also?
1: Well, it's always been there for me in terms of um, like writing songs and, and things like that. Uh, as a matter of fact, just for any young people that might be listening and writing songs, one of the crazy detours in my career was um, uh, through my friend, the amazingly unique uh, banjo player, Bill Crowfoot. He came up with this idea of, why don't we do a record with this famous opera singer named Frederica von Stada? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going, that, that sounds like one of the weirdest ideas I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> why, why, why should we do that? He said, oh, she's really cool. You know, she, you know, she, she wants to branch out, and you've got to meet her. And, you know, that's a very f- forbidding name. You know, right. like you expect to see, you know, some princess with, you know, smothered in diamonds with, with Prussian boots on, you know, Barnstadter, <laughs> you know, it's like a riding crop and, you know, likes mm. to. Be, and she turns out to be nothing like her name. She's like the sweetest person, maybe the sweetest person I've ever met in my life. Mm. She's very sweet. But I'm telling you this story because. Uh, Bill says to me because I used to write even some some little string arrangements for for Bill when I was about twelve years old. I wrote yeah. sort of a cello quartet thing for one of his records and 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 he said, "Yeah, you know, you wrote this song a long time ago. You should you should play it for her." And so I wrote this song called "Across Your Dreams." And you know, here she is, this famous opera singer. She heard it. She says, "That's a great song. You know, and you wrote it when you're eleven, but the core of it's there. Why don't you kind of sort of." You know, make it a little hipper, and I'd be interested in recording that. So, at her encouragement, I did that, and we ended up doing a whole record on Telarc, and it was called "Across Your Dreams" uh, from that that one little tune that I wrote as, as a kid. And wow. then to put the to put the cherry on the top of the story, when uh, when Flicka is her nickname, Frederica Bachata, when she retired, she invited my wife Tish and I to Carnegie Hall to see her performance. Oh. And she came on stage, and her encore was singing Across Your Dreams with her daughter. So I was like, holy God, oh. you know how you live long enough, these crazy things happen. And um, oh. the, the, to really directly answer your question, uh, what happened as a classical composer, is I had been doing some arrangement for orchestra for my father with some of his tunes with the London Symphony and programs we were playing like that. And I uh, had an opportunity. I was asked to write a a piece for the Bridgeport Youth Symphony in Connecticut,
2: mm-hmm, and
1: mm-hmm. Um, I Ascension. thought, oh, well, I, yeah. So it was like it was, uh, you know, the amount of money they had to pay me to do it was, you know, absurdly low. Right. And then I just really thought out of the box. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll take the same ridiculously low amount of money. If you let me write a trombone concerto for myself, mm-hmm. because one thing I learned at the Interlogan Arts Academy is that if you're a trombone player in an orchestra, you can sit on your ass and count bars, like 345, 346, okay, now I get to play, and then the conductor says, all right, back to the beginning of the movement, you go, no, <laughs> you have to start counting again. So I swear someday I'll have my revenge, I'll write a trombone concerto. Oh, so I hope you do. I, uh, I, I did that. Oh, um, that's when you did or, it. That's oh. when I started. And, you know, I, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I got that out of me. And then then I was playing a gig, I think, with Bill Crawford with the Boston Pops. And the bass trombonist in the Boston Pops, like 90% of the personnel in the Boston Pops is the same as uh, the Boston Symphony. And he came up to me and said, hey, you know, have you ever written anything for trombone? Uh, you know, I'm always looking for new music. I said, well, you know, I wrote this little thing with the Bridgeport Youth Symphony, and I I didn't think it was any kind of game-changer or anything. So I sent him a copy of it, and this is before uh, emails. I think it was a fax I got. I was in California. Mm -hmm. And he just, he heard it. He went, oh, my God, I love this piece. I want to play it with Boston, you know. And and he did. And then... uh, and it got televised because there used to be a thing called evening at pops that was on TV uh-huh, and uh-huh, on PBS. Then a lot of people saw it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, so that happened and then it got, uh, uh, it got recognized and pretty soon just about all the biggest, best trombone players, um, had played that piece with their various orchestras. So, so like then Boston came back to me and asked me to write a piece to celebrate the hundredth anniversary, uh, of what they were doing. Um, uh, I write a concerto for orchestra, and that became Convergence. And then there was a piece called Interplay for three violins and orchestra, and um, that won a prize from ASCAP. And so, basically, you know, the first baby step was you know, daring to write um, the trombone concerto with the Bridgeport Youth Symphony. And then it's just been step by step. Every time I write something, someone else appears and asks me to write something else.
0: And, and you have some exciting right things coming up next year, right? With Memphis.
1: Yeah, yeah, well we've got uh there's some really great guitarists and uh and um, this this idea came actually from the Memphis conductor to to you know write a concerto that's both a blues concerto and a classical concerto with two guitarists and orchestra and sort of fuse them together. Amazing. So that's uh that's my next project and then, then a couple of years ago I was really thrilled to uh write a, a guitar concerto for Sharon Isbin, who's, uh, you know, one of our most famous uh, classical guitarists and for sure is the most responsible for expanding the literature of classical guitar. She really goes out and finds composers and gets commissions and records and does new pieces. So all that's uh, been really exciting to, to work with the likes of her.
0: Very exciting, very exciting. and um, And of course... Brubeck Brothers, um, you guys, you're you're touring a lot. You, I mean, obviously, I know COVID happened and everything just kind of put the brakes on. But you guys, looks like you got um, Canada next month coming up, and yeah. Arizona and Nevada and. Monterey Jazz Festival is happening and I know you were recently in Woodstock at the Bearsville Theater in the Hudson Valley which of course is where we're broadcasting from and yeah, um, yeah. and I saw that you have a gig at Corning Glass Museum what a wonderful place that is I just was there not a few months ago my daughter goes to music school actually she's a violinist and she's in Ithaca and we Oh yeah it's yeah, a great school it is a great school yeah yeah she's a senior there and um we went to Corning Glass Museum and I saw on your website that the Brubeck brothers are actually playing there on November 12th. And, you know, you're just all over the place. And um, any dates that you have that are coming back to, like, the Northeast? Like, maybe, I'm guessing, over the winter or anything like that?
1: Well, I, there, there will be uh, some things. But, uh, honestly, uh, I had to sort of make sure I had time to write this new concerto. <laughs> so we're trying to chill out a little bit. Um, you know, in November, December, January, February. You know, there's
2: right, some the exceptions,
1: but, yeah. but 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 um, you know, it was interesting because uh, if you think it's it's really bad to be a musician, imagine being a music agent with about 20 acts, <laughs> and you get you get 15 of nothingness. Yes, while while COVID's going on, yeah. and um, so are we've been really really busy because. First of all, there was a sort of year of nothingness. Yes. And then people were rescheduling, and then they were rescheduling their rescheduled gigs, and then there were new gigs. And so it's been very busy because it's sort of, you know, what used to be becoming new gigs and, w- and new gigs and everything colliding and trying to juggle them, and so that's been going on.
0: During but, that time you know, of you being home, did you find yourself being creative? Like, were compositions coming to you, or how was that when we were really truly in lockdown?
1: um well in in my case i was lucky because um we had done the jazz cruise, and there was supposed to be a big uh, serious uh, xm broadcast of it so i was listening to raw tapes and and they had the ability to mix them so i was doing sort of over the phone mixing and writing long emails like at 330 the guitar is too loud pull it down two db you know that kind of stuff and uh So that kept me busy, and also we had started a new record company for our family called Brubeck Editions. So we were working on a a record that we put out called Time Outtakes, Mm -hmm. and uh, that was the result of, because it was my dad's centennial, a couple books were written, and those authors during their research uh, told Dan and I and my brother Darius and the rest of the family, did you know that there are outtakes to Time Out? And I actually had no idea. and never thought of it. and then he said, yeah, you should check it out. And when we heard it, we went like, oh, my God, some of these are better than the original <laughs> <laughs> really? things that are on Time Out. So, yeah, so that became a project of uh, listening and editing and remixing and finding some brand-new tracks. And, and
0: uh, so then I, I think out. you and I also have another friend in common, Scott Petito.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Scott, he's very, very instrumental in the history of uh Brubeck Brothers' recording, mm-hmm. and also I like him so much as a musician and engineer that I worked with him on time outtakes. And another thing where we did a lot of it by corresponding over the phone and, and, you know, working on mixing and reverb and original tapes and all that. And it, and it did great. I mean, it was in the top ten of, of jazz airplay and got a lot of great reviews. And then we just put out another record that, uh the Dave Brubeck Trio live in Vienna in 67. And what's really unique about that record is that um, uh, Paul Desmond, who was the you know amazing uh, sax player in the Dave Brubeck Quartet? You know, there's never been anyone like him, and he's an incredible player. But um, one night, uh, and, I mean, he was the kind of guy that really liked to go to a, a club, a quiet music club, mm-hmm. where there was a great pianist and and drank a lot of Dewar's Scotch. That was his <laughs> drink of choice. And uh, so he met some some friends from. Uh, New York that had moved over to be in some of those uh, German state-sponsored uh, big bands. In Hamburg, the uh, quartet had played, and uh, he didn't make the lobby call the next morning, nor the next afternoon, nor the airport, or the next day. I mean, he just basically went AWOL off the tour. Yeah. And so the, the the quartet had to play as a trio, but they played with such intensity, I think, part of it was to prove that it sounded great without Paul and part of it maybe they were angry or mm-hmm. whatever it was they just played their asses off <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so wow. this tape appeared you know after you know all these years from Austrian radio and so uh that came out and that's also been in the top 10 and gotten great reviews so it's uh my brothers and I we try to listen for Uh, things that we know that people that like Dave Rebeck would not have heard before and hopefully find that and and get that out.
0: Yeah. 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 Amazing. Amazing. It is um, the stories that you have. I really hope you consider at least consider writing a book because this is so interesting and I could talk at least for another hour um, with you about all of this because it really truly is. And Brubeckbrothers.com. I want to tell people about your website, Chris com, And just really look up your work because you are remarkable. The apple does not fall far from the tree um, from your family. That's for sure. And of course um, you guys as Brubeck brothers, you're out on the road a lot. um, But also your other work is also so interesting. And, um, and I'd like you just would like to finish by talking about the next song I'm going to play. You don't hear nine minute tracks on the radio very often, but I think I should play this uh, with triple play at, uh, Live at Arthur Zangle Music Center, if you would just talk about that if, a minute.
1: Well, I'll, I'll tell you, that, that turned out to be so fortuitous, I mean, because Joel Brown is a professor of guitar at Skidmore College. Um, we, of, of course, have a long history of doing concerts there, and Joel's very popular in the town of Saratoga Springs for all of his many talents. But Joel's from a super musical family, including his father, Frank, who plays clarinet. And so Triple Play was doing that concert, and people kept saying, hey, is there any chance you can get your dad to come up there and play? And um, so we talked him uh, into it, and and then uh, Joel's father played clarinet with us, too. But the, I think the super interesting thing is that the engineer said, this is such a new hall. You know, we have Pro Tools. Uh, it's a technique mm-hmm. of, uh, a recording, you know, of yeah. recording. And they said, you know, it would be very easy for us to record this concert mm-hmm. uh and then I knew that my dad would get actually nervous enough, even after doing 150 Elms, that he would play differently if he knew it was being recorded. And Joel knew for certain his dad would, would do get nervous. So the, the sons, Joel and me, Didn't say decided it. that we would not tell them. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> Until after the fact
1: until way after the fact. In fact, one of the great ironies is uh, I was helping my dad off the stage. uh, You know, he could use a physical support and uh, we're walking, he said... He said, to me, "Gosh, damn it! That was a good concert. Too bad it wasn't recorded. <laughs> and even then, I didn't tell him oh. because uh, you know I wanted to. You know, who knows if the tape got erased or something? So I wanted to
0: make to sure, wait, but that make sure. Yeah. And then, what when you did tell him? What was his reaction?
1: Oh, it was great. I, uh, uh, I, you know, played the whole thing for him. You know, I think we had had at least sort of gotten it in order and you know, had a rough mix of it or maybe i can't remember if it was the final mix or a rough mix but you know he was really pleased and it oh. uh, turned out to be the last recording that he made mm-hmm. and uh and you know i've been looking forward to playing with triple play for we've been sort of off because of covid for a couple of years and son of a gun if it if it didn't come and bite us on the butt again oh. because uh
2: yeah.
1: we yeah. had some gigs uh, coming up and uh and then Mad Cat came back from a harmonica convention. And when I think about it, that might be the best place in the world to get COVID. Everyone's huffing and puffing and right. blowing. And,
2: right, sure. <laughs> sure, sure,
1: yeah. You know, yeah. And, and he got COVID, so he he's not in any shape to travel for a while. So right. it's been really disappointing. But, you know, I, I also came across a letter from Mad Cat from 1969, when I had first met him, Jan with him once, and I told him, "Hey, at the end of my school year, I'm going to do a demo uh, record for this group, New Heaven and the Blue." But I want you to be a part of it. And I just physically, and I realized, "Oh my god, these these letters are 53 years old that I just found. It's something? like this yeah. is like archive material from him. Uh, uh, he didn't even know it yet."
0: <laughs> amazing. Is all like your dad's and your music? Is it all like somewhere like in the Smithsonian, or like I mean? Is there a, a, a library or some, something where everything is housed?
1: That's a great question. And there is archives, the Brubeck Archive Room, which we switched from the University of Pacific after 20 years to the Wilmington, Connecticut Library,
2: Perfect.
1: which was a really wonderful, big deal. The town is so proud of it, and even our senator... Uh, Senator Blumenthal came down for the ribbon cutting, where we have a, a room and we have archivists. And you know, the the collection is always growing with things that. Uh, in like, fact, I'm just saying, hmm. I think because of all the years that Mad Cat, the harmonica player, played in my groups, played on stage with Dave, and played on this, this Ankle Hall. Record that this is like this is archival material, some research player Like, oh my god, there's a note from Mad Cat when he first connected with the Brubeck family.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, wow, that's amazing. And in the United States, May 4th is. Informally observed as Dave Brubeck Day. So, I mean, I'm glad to hear <laughs> that there's a little place where like all this stuff is coming together. And, um, and yeah, so Chris, it, it's an absolute pleasure. I really do hope you come back maybe when you have a, br- a BBQ show, barbecue show, <laughs> Brubeck <laughs> yeah, Brothers yeah, yeah, Quartet, yeah. when you have one here in the area. I'd love to like meet you, come to a show, and have you back on air because it's, it, I think we just scratched the surface and there's so much more to go. Um, but I do want to really thank you for your time here today and let listeners know about your website, com, Also, uh, BrubeckBrothers.com. You even have BrubeckMusic.com info on all the brothers. And I mean... You guys are all amazing. What a family! And um, thank you for the gift of music, which we will have for the rest of our lives and generations to come. Here, so the work that you do is is really remarkable, and you are such a talent and such a gift to us all. So I really appreciate your time here today. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna play some triple play now.
1: All right. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Rita. You put a smile on my face, and you make me glad that I've been. Doing what I've been doing all my life, and, and don't this stop. Is, this is why you do it—to connect with people. Exactly, like you know, and sure. don't
0: don't stop doing this because it's a beautiful thing. And um, I do look forward to meeting you in person at some point. There, Chris, and again, thank you so much for your time. And uh, stay tuned for some triple play take five. All right,
1: thank all right, you.
0: Take care. Bye bye. 91.3 WVKR. As promised, let's take a listen to take five triple play. Thank you. Thank you. WVKR, Independent Radio, Poughkeepsie, New York. Nine minutes. Amazing. That was Chris Brubeck's group, Triple Play, live at Arthur Zankel Music Center with Joel Brown and Peter Madcath-Ruth with special guests, Dave Brubeck and Frank Brown. And this turned out to be Dave Brubeck's last recording. Dave Brubeck passed away about 10 years ago, and uh, day before his 92nd birthday. Today's guest, Chris Brubeck, with an amazing career, absolutely amazing career, Grammy-nominated composer, uh, musician, just, wow, amazing. So if you missed, if you're just getting out of work or just tuning into WVKR right now, you're going to want to hear the interview we just did with Chris Brubeck. It'll be uploaded tonight on the local motion on 91.3 WVKR YouTube channel, as well as the um, Facebook page by the same name. If you'd subscribe and give a like and a follow, that's always appreciated. And just a huge thank you again to Chris Brubeck, for being my guest here today you can visit his website com, also brubeckmusic.com and Brothers.com. just google him you'll find him and he is uh, quite quite a talented gentleman that's for sure Ah, all right. So now we're going to do the next hour here, and as we always do with local motion, this show features music of the Hudson Valley. I always start off every segment that I host here that does not have a guest. I start it off with paying tribute to our beloved Tony Falco. So I he he passed away October twenty eighth of twenty twenty one. And um, he left a Spotify playlist and every week I pick a track off of it, kind of keeping it in order and, um and there's like 200 and something songs on there. And I figure once that is done, I'll start from song number one. So that's how I start off local motion here by paying tribute to Tony Falco. You can also pay tribute to him by going to the Falcon. They're keeping it going. His wonderful son, Lee Falco is running and operating it right now. And you can always check out all the great events that are happening at the Falcon. In the meantime, let's take a listen to a track that was on Tony's playlist by Mo be Grape, one three, WVKR.
2: 805
3: well, I guess you're leaving soon I can't go on Without you It's useless to try
2: Love you so good Keep you with me so wonderful 91.3
0: WVKR Independent Radio, Poughkeepsie, New York. The Restless Age track called Take It. Restless Age consists of Lee Falco on drums, Brandon Morrison on bass, and Will Bryant on keyboards. And they are going to be accompanying Tom Freund at the Falcon this Friday night. Live at thefalcon.com. For reservations, there's never tickets sold at the Falcon, so everything there is done a little bit differently, and it's all done by donations, so all you have to do is call them or go on their website and make a reservation. Again, Tom Freund, along with The Restless Age, at the Falcon this Friday night. We started off, as we do each and every show here where there is not a guest, the hour that there's not a guest, we dedicate a track to Tony Falco who brought us so many wonderful things and known for the legacy of the the Falcon itself. So what we are going to say that, um, yeah, we heard Moby Grape, 805, was the track that we heard for Tony today. And it's always cool because it's just, I don't know, it's just really nice to play a track of Tony's because he had such great taste in music, obviously, and um, just diverse uh, taste as well. So I'm always surprised sometimes what I find on his playlist and I thought I'd just share it all with you. It's 514. I'm your host Rita Ryan. I'm here each and every Wednesday from 4 to 6 p.m. We lost a giant this week in the music world. Mr. Warren Bernhardt passed away. Uh, from I'll read out what I found on his website. From 1961 to 1964, Warren Bernhardt worked in Paul Winter's Sextet, which led to his return to New York. Once in New York, he worked with George Benson, Jerry Mulligan, Jeremy Steig, and others. He also developed a close relationship with pianist Bill Evans, who served as a mentor to Bernhardt. Warren Bernhardt released several solo LPs in the 1970s and eventually became a member of the Jazz Fusion Group Steps Ahead while continuing to work on solo projects. In 1971, he provided the piano accompaniment on the song Crossroads by Don McLean. Bernhardt released jazz and classical recordings over the decades and is also featured in teaching sessions in both audio and video formats from homespun tapes. Bernhardt toured as the musical director with Steely Dan in the United States from 93 to 94 and can be heard on Steely Dan's Alive in America album. He's performed with Simon and Garfunkel's old Friends tour on Art Garfunkel's solo tours and can be seen on the Art Garfunkel DVD and HD TV presentation Across America. In 2009, Warren Bernhardt reunited with his band from 1973, Lamage, featuring Mike Maneri, David Spinoza, Tony Levin, and Steve Gadd. The group performed at the Arabian Jazz Club in New York City and toured Japan and released the album. Unfortunately, we lost Warren Bernhardt this week, and he, um, he was a resident here in the Hudson Valley. And I remember years ago, back in the 90s, I was having dinner at a nice French restaurant in uptown Kingston, and a beautiful piano was out, and I was sitting there having dinner, and, um, and all of a sudden this pianist started playing, and it turns out it was Warren Bernhardt. And what a remarkable dinner and um, music that turned out to be. So you never know who you're going to run into here in the Hudson Valley. So thank you for the music, Mr. Warren Bernhardt. And let's play a track of his music right now. This is the title track from his album called Family Album, 91.3. 213 WVKR Independent Radio, Poughkeepsie, New York on vocals, John Mayer on guitar, the one and only John Schofield. I don't need no doctor. The album called John Schofield plays Ray Charles. If you like guitarists, there's a plethora of them. I should say at least four of them coming to the Guitar Summit at Bearsville Theater in Woodstock this Friday, the 26th. I think it's close to sold out. I think there might be a standing room ticket or two, but I don't even know. You'd have to go to bearsvilletheater.com. So check this out. This Friday, Guitar Summit, Bearsville Theater, John Schofield, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Mike Stern, and if that wasn't enough, Bill Frizzell will be there. Um, anyway, hope to see some of you out there. There. Um, it's going to be an amazing night of music at Bearsville Theater. Again, the Guitar Summit this Friday, the 26th. John Schofield, Kurt Rosenwinkle, Mike Stern, and Bill Frizzell. If there are tickets, you can check them out and buy them at BearsvilleTheater.com. We also heard a track from Warren Bernhardt, the title track, Family Album. And we. He succumbed to a long-time illness a few days ago, Warren Bernhardt, and lived in Woodstock for decades and decades and decades. So i oh, paid a little tribute to him. Um, so this past weekend, I want to say this past Friday, I went to Bethel Woods, and I got to see Brandy Carlisle, and it was pretty amazing, and... Um, I was blown away by her concert, um, but there were some great openers as well, and one of the openers there was Yola, and I had not been very familiar with her music, but I'm pretty familiar with her guitarist, who is Andy Stack, who lives in Beacon, who's been on the show and um, is quite a talent of his own. So uh, that was a cool treat, you know, when you see a kind of a big, kind of a big show, it is right. And you see um, up there with Andy Stack up there and Yola and then one of the uh, uh, one of the songs that Yola was playing as she was warming up for Brandy Carlyle, Brandy Carline. Carlisle came up on stage and joined them as well so it was kind of a cool cool thing to see so Andy will be performing this Sunday at Town Crier we'll talk more about that so Andy Stack has a track called Temporary let's take a listen to it right here right now on 91.3 WVKR